Hello, and welcome to Learning on the Run, a service of UVA's Lifetime Learning Program in the Office of Engagement. Perhaps 90% of the Earth's population lives within 100 miles of the ocean. The ocean covers 71% of the planet and provides one-sixth of the world's protein. Yet the threat to that ecosystem from climate change, pollution, and overpopulation has never been greater than in the present. On September 29, 2012, Stephen Mako, professor, isotope and organic geochemistry in the Department of Environmental Sciences, briefed a gathering of Virginia alumni on the current status of this precious resource. Mako received an undergraduate degree in chemistry from Carnegie Mellon, a Master of Sciences in Oceanography from the University of Maine, and a Ph.D. in chemistry from the University of Texas. My plan today is to address what some would call a crisis. I'm going to present information to you, and I'm going to let you be the judge. If you think about the Earth, the Earth has an ocean, and we think of the ocean as being very deep, but if I held a globe in front of you, and you look at the globe, the thickness of the ocean on that globe is about the thickness of the paper on the skin of the globe, okay? But that water, covers 71% of the Earth's surface, and it is because of that water that life exists on the planet. A consideration at the same time is that we have this very growing population on the planet. You know, we've got seven billion people, and it's going to continue to grow. We depend on the ocean for nutrition, for energy, for mineral resources, and also for pleasure. I'm going to tell you a little bit about the basics on the change in state that we're seeing going on with this thin veneer of water on the surface. And we're going to look a little bit at something that I know a lot of you have heard and read about, and that's that the Earth is warming and that sea level is rising. We're going to then also talk about the idea that there will be a loss of sea ice that's going to affect productivity on the ocean, how many fish that we can get from the ocean, how life is sustained in the ocean. We're going to talk a little bit about pollution, something that there's, I'm going to talk with you a little bit about a type of pollution you may not even be considering, and this is last one, that the ocean is becoming more acid. And some of the other impacts of changing the changing ocean as far as migratory birds, how they're being affected, uh, the fisheries in general, and other kinds of pollutants that you probably are aware of uh, with regard to oil and the large oil spill from the BP disaster, as well as other metals that are in the ocean that you should be aware of if you're not. There is strong evidence. Make no mistake about it. The Earth is warming. Okay? We can discuss why it's warming. We can argue about that how much impact humans have, but the Earth is warming. The temperatures are increasing. They're at the highest level of any recent documentation, and they will continue to increase. The models suggest that over the course of the next century that we're going to see temperatures that are on the order of a few degrees warmer than at present. How will that impact the whatever's happening on the face of the Earth. It's going to change the way we think of the Earth today. The suspects uh, for helping to enhance the warming 
under the models are carbon dioxide, obviously, but methane. You may not think about methane as being related to the warming of the Earth, but in fact, it is. Methane has 20 times the warming capacity as carbon dioxide. There are regions of the planet that are going to be susceptible to or vulnerable to this change most immediately. Some places like South Florida will be underwater. New Orleans, which is already underwater, will continue to be further under sea level. But places like Bangladesh, you know, the coast of, of uh, Holland and uh, England, China has large areas. And there will be hundreds of millions of people being affected by the rise in sea level. This is the rise in the ocean surface. We're talking about meters, you know, the height of this room, perhaps, and over the course of the next century. As the Earth warms, it's going to impact the Arctic much greater and the Antarctic much greater than we see in the more temperate latitudes. And that's because the Arctic and Antarctic are under ice. And at the present time, the Arctic is changing more rapidly than at any time in the past at least 10,000 years. The Arctic surface is being inundated, and this is all the, you can see the, the coastline there, all of this is going to be underwater in the near term. And you think, well, why do we worry about that? Well, it turns out that these areas are breeding grounds for huge populations of birds. There are birds that migrate from South America all the way up to the high Arctic to breed. The Arctic is especially sensitive because it is under ice, and a lot of that sunlight, a lot of that energy is being reflected back into space. But as the ice melts, the Arctic Ocean is going to be exposed, it's going to be darker, and more heat is going to be absorbed. So it's going to be an accelerated warming. The Arctic is covered by sea ice every year, and there is a time of melting going on, because in 2012, we are now at a minimum for sea ice coverage that has ever been recorded this September. But what we're talking about is that parts of the Arctic are going to be open water for a greater part of the time. But some of the effects are going to be less obvious. The ecosystem is going to be changing. There is going to be effects of us exploring for oil. There is going to be effects on the fisheries as we, as we open up the Arctic uh, with less sea ice. Something that is kind of interesting is that and this is at the present time. This is the coastline of Alaska. And what you're seeing is erosion of peats that because it's now open water more, because it's warming, there is actually meters, sometimes per day, of the coastline that's eroding into the ocean because of the warming. And you think, well, you know, this has happened. We get erosion all the time. But in those peats and in the permafrost, are basically frozen methane, okay? Frozen methane, we call those hydrates, gas hydrates. These peats are, have a lot of these gas hydrates in them, and some people have suggested that they're gonna be a source of energy for future generations. And th these are some students, actually. You can hold them in your hand. They feel they're about five degrees centigrade, but you can actually ignite them. And so they're just a little bit of a, problem on how to handle them because they're not stable. The Arctic has 400 gigatons 
of natural gas that's in the form of this gas hydrate. Well, what's happening with the ocean, they have these gas hydrates, and as the ocean is beginning to warm, they're becoming less stable. Five degrees is kind of their limit of stability, and what's already happening off of Svalbard Island and other parts of the high Arctic, that these are uh, recordings of the bubbles that are coming out of the sediment, and methane is going into the ocean and escaping and going into the atmosphere with this enhanced warming capacity of 20 times carbon dioxide because of the destruction of the gas hydrates. Okay? This is physical chemistry. It's happening at the present time. So, and what are, these, what are the gas hydrates dissolving in the water going to do? Well, in fact, they're going to have these warming effects, but they're going to affect fisheries. Fish are going to avoid high levels of methane. They can't breathe. So, I'm talking about fisheries. How are the fisheries being affected, or how will they be affected as we get global change going on? But I want you to consider the ocean is the last place where we harvest the wild protein. One-sixth of the world's protein comes from a wild source. That's a billion people if you do the average. And we're depending, a billion people are dependent entirely on the ocean, in, in effect, for harvesting that protein. How are we going to, how is that going to be affected? How is it being affected? Generally, we see fisheries mis mismanagement. Globally, there has been overfishing. Globally, there is commercial extinction potential. You know, if I mentioned some, uh, an organism called the stellar sea cow, has anybody ever heard of the stellar sea cow? 1768, it has to be around. That was the last one. It was hunted to extinction. Human-induced extinction of a marine mammal. We've tried it on other things. Have you, you've heard of, of the right whale? There are a couple hundred right whales left in the northern oceans. You think this is an animal very close to extinction. Nature is probably one of the premier, is one of the two premier journals in the world. And they commonly have articles about the losses of the fisheries. But this is really the description. If you look at fisheries catches over the course of the last few decades, you'll see that from the 40s up through about 1990, there was increasing fisheries because there was increasing boats. We had increasing good technologies. We could harvest more from the ocean, increasing numbers of vessels. But then right around 1990 or so, everything started to go flat. It was not you know, beneficial to put out more boats. And what was happening is right around 1990 through today, it's flatlined. Any doctors in the audience? But it's flatlining. You know, it's, you're worried. And we are harvesting the same number of fish, smaller, fewer species, than we were harvesting just back about 1980. Um, bycatch, we're harvesting more bycatch. There are some fisheries, and I'll show you the data, that bycatch, when I talk about it, they are not what we want. If you're in a shrimp fishery, you want the shrimp. You're catching starfish, other fish, you know, skates as part, and crabs. We're not prepared to handle bycatch. When a, when a boat comes in and goes out, they're not prepared. Well, if you catch a grouper in your shrimp nets, well, if they, we were prepared to handle the grouper, we could have it in the market. But if you're a shrimper, you, we're not prepared to handle it. 
I know of one country that actually actively does something with bycatch, and that's Iceland. And I talked to a guy who has worked in Iceland. He said they actually have to document all the bycatch. We don't document it. It goes over the side in the North American fishery. In the open ocean, we can talk about the large fish, whether it's tuna fish, billfish, and the sharks. In the northern hemisphere, intense fishing is being conducted, and there's lots of standards. Japan, before World War II, harvested a million tons of tuna fish. A million tons. I just showed you, 86 million tons is the total world harvest of fish. 1% or more was just Japan harvesting tuna fish. In 1950, the United States harvested about a sixth of that. In recent fishing, Spain, uh, all of the North Atlantic, compared to Spain in 1950, Spain's catch of, of fish, tuna fish, in 1950 was greater than the entire catch of all countries fishing the North Atlantic. Is there a problem? All fish are actually in decline. If you look at, here's numbers of species being caught. We're harvesting fewer species. And the numbers of fish have reached a maximum somewhere around 1990. And they continue to be in decline worldwide. What has changed in fisheries worldwide? Well, we've seen declines, sometimes 90% of the numbers of fish that we're catching in those of the different kinds of fish. The sizes, we no longer get the large halibut. They're, they're not there anymore. And we're changing the species. We're no longer harvesting the species that we usually catch. We're going for different species. Some of the bycatch, in fact, is now turning into a principal catch. Dogfish, for example, skate. Changes in the Pacific, up to 42% declines in the fish that are being caught in the Atlantic and Pacific. What are we catching? Well, we're, we're changing some of the fish that we're catching, but we're landing more of something that we're discarding. When you go and you get wild shrimp, for example, a pound of wild shrimp means that they have thrown away, well, for every pound that's landed, there are probably five pounds that are thrown away of bycatch. But the thought is, that all the world's fisheries, all the fish that when you go to a restaurant and, and eat a fish, unless it's, unless it's farmed, that what all the fish over the next 50 years may be economically extinct. We will change our diet. One-sixth of the world's nutrition comes from the ocean. And we have to make that change. What else is going on? Primary production is going to be changing. Primary production are, is the ocean's plants. One half of the world's oxygen comes from the ocean. These are the plants, the slippery green stuff, when you walk on a rock along the shore, those are the, those are the plants that grow in the ocean. They might look like this. Some of them have shells. Those are called coccolithophores. Uh, some of them grow under the ice of the Arctic. Well, if there's no ice, where are they going to grow? The Arctic Ocean uh, is dependent on these same uh, plants that grow under the ice. This is what they're called. They're called ice al algae. About 25% of the nutrition of the Arctic comes from algae that's attached to the ice. It actually gets green slime under the ice. It's going to be gone. 
or it's going to bloom, the ice is going to be there, but it's going to be blooming long before the timing of the fish becoming available because it's, it's going away earlier. The Arctic is still going to be frozen for, for the foreseeable future, but it's going to be ice-free along the land. The effects on the fisheries and primary producers, we don't know. We can't predict what's going to happen to those. Actually, I know that there are plans in Canada for beginning to harvest more fish up in the high Arctic once it becomes open ocean. How many fish are there? Do you know? We don't know. And we're going to start harvesting them with the same intensity that we har over-harvest the rest of the world. The Antarctic is exactly the same. We can flip the globe around that the Antarctic is warming. The Antarctic Peninsula has warmed probably at least a degree in the last 50 years. What does that mean? Well, the, there are organisms, they look like shrimp, they're called krill. Whales that live off of Antarctica eat a half a ton of krill a day. The krill have declined. We're affecting all parts of the ecosystem, all organisms, penguins, whales, and the fisheries off of Antarctica are being affected because the krill are declining. How warming and, and, and the loss of those are going to affect, we don't know. Will there be alternative organisms? Some people hope that because that could be an increase in you know, what could be supplying. These are what krill look like. You know, these other populations, what are they going to be uh, eating? We see this already with over-harvesting of whales off of the Pacific. And instead of whales, killer whales, the friendly orcas, they are now turning to other organisms for, uh, for nutrition, seals, for example. And so their whole, the whole food chain, the alternative food, foods are being changed. Spawning of fish is going to be changed. You know, what are the critical temperatures? Some of them actually need sea ice, okay, and, uh, in order to spawn and put their eggs and lay their eggs. You know, the timing of the spawning, as the temperatures change, how will those fisheries, this is worldwide. The location of where we find fish, this is the Arctic cod. In fact, if you eat cod in a restaurant now, it's probably Arctic cod. This is a, a little fish that's found in Antarctica, and it's uh, called the uh, Antarctic silverfish. It actually depends on laying its eggs in the ice. So without the ice present, where is this fish going to lay its eggs? So we're going to lose that kind of productivity. As the changes happen, and with the krill or with the silverfish, Instead of being phytoplankton going through the krill, there will have to be some other pathway or those fisheries and the higher trophic organisms are going to be lost. What about higher trophic level organisms? This is a, a favorite picture of mine up in the high Arctic. These are belugas. Some of you may have known a child song, Baby Beluga. Okay, these are the little white whales. And it's like there are huge pods of them. How will they be affected? Well, it's hard to say. Oh, we're not hunting them to any extreme. You know, like seals, walruses, sea lions. And how will they be you know, affected? Well, with the loss of sea ice, polar bears require ice for hunting, for their sustain. They can only swim so far to hunt seals down. Polar bears are threatened with extinction. And that's, that's certain. With the loss of sea ice, polar bears don't go up to the really high Arctic. So they stay by the land and they go onto the sea ice. Without the sea ice, they won't be able to hunt. Some of you I know are birders and you might think, well, we've got these bird populations. One of my favorites is the red knot because 
it actually, I've been told, and I've been told I was wrong also, but the red coloring actually comes from eating eggs from horseshoe crabs. And many of you have seen horseshoe crabs. If you go out to the eastern shore of Virginia, you'll see horseshoe crabs, and they have horseshoe crab eggs, which are these red, and they come in and they are about the size of my fist, and then they will eat so many horseshoe crab eggs that they will almost double in weight. And what they're doing is they're stocking up on nutrition as they fly through Virginia and Delaware and Maryland because they're going to go up to the high Arctic and lay their eggs. That's where they oversummer. Anyway, red knots are in severe decline. 100 different species, millions of shorebirds are going to be affected by that coastal change. And it could be that millions of birds, millions of shorebirds, are going to be in severe decline. And some people suspect or uh, birds like the red knot already are because of the changing climate. One thing in particular with the red knot is that the harvesting of horseshoe crabs in Virginia is totally unregulated, essentially. And it's, uh, you think, well, what do you do with a horseshoe crab? Well, in fact, in some of the fisheries, like crab fishery or conch fisheries, they're used as bait. And so there's no thought about how many of these horseshoe crabs we should be harvesting for bait and not letting them have eggs that are going to keep along this flyway of the red knot. So this is, I would part of this, the, it's, not, it's not the same as mismanagement, it's unmanagement of an essential part of an ecosystem. Uh, I've got to mention other things like pollution in the ocean with, you know, part of the evidence for a crisis is pollution. Uh, plastics is a really uh, a big uh, part of this. There are five million tons of plastic. Over 50,000 pieces of plastic enter the ocean every year. There are islands in the central Pacific and now there are islands that have been discovered in the central gyres of the Atlantic Ocean that are the size of the state of Texas. And nobody knows how deep it is, but it's all plastic, and plastic can last for decades, depending on the kinds of plastic. The other side is a mystery about that there are high levels of mercury inside of larger fish. And you should be aware of this, uh, that the higher levels of mercury are found in tuna fish, that the levels are such that and we don't know exactly where it's coming from. As some people suspect it's coming from fossil fuel burning. That's not well established. But the fact is that the mercury is there. I'm giving you the data. That if you were a woman of childbearing age, or if you had a child or a grandchild that's under 55 pounds, the child probably should not eat more than one six-ounce can of tuna fish per week. Aside from the great benefits of tuna fish, which is the omega-3 fatty acids, the other side is you're elevating your level of mercury to a, a level that you should be concerned about cognitive processes. You all know about the grand oil spill of 2010 and the fact that that oil entered into the environment. It was probably some people suggest it's the largest oil, accidental oil spill ever. Something of consideration, we're thinking about drilling the high Arctic. And as we drill the high Arctic, how do we handle an oil spill where there's ice? We put booms up off of Valdez, you know, the Alaskan oil spill, or around the, the BP oil spill. But you can't do that with ice. We are totally unprepared 
for an accident of any kind of magnitude. There was a small one in Prudhoe Bay back in 2006. Can't handle it. How do you deal with an oil spill in the high Arctic? And we are searching for oil. Shell's rig was out there in September. One other kind of pollution that you may not even you may not realize is that as we put carbon dioxide in the atmosphere, we are causing increasing amount of carbon dioxide to dissolve in the ocean. Back maybe in grade school, you took a straw and you blew it into a, a glass of water and you might have seen the pH change. You got more acid. You were forming a material called carbonic acid. This is straightforward physical chemistry. It's not a model. Well, with increasing amounts of carbon dioxide in the atmosphere, since the time some of you were born, the pH of the ocean has dropped 0.1 units. And you say, 0.1 units, who cares? This is a, what's called a logarithmic scale. It's a power of 10 scale. That means that the ocean's acidity has increased about 30%. Parts of the ocean have increased 30% since the time you were born. 1750 was probably even a little bit more basic. Here's at the present. In 100 years, it's going to be double maybe triple the acidity of today's ocean. Does that mean anything? How important is that? Well, there are organisms. Remember I showed you these? They were called coccolithophores. They're shells made out of calcium carbonate. These are the organisms that are feeding the fish and which get eaten by the seals and the whales. This is called acidification of the ocean waters. We see blooms of the coccolithophores. As the ocean becomes more acid, this is what happens to the coccolithophores. They start to dissolve up. It's like an oyster shell in acid, battery acid. It's happening today. When I gave this talk up in Seward, Alaska, there was one of the native Alaskans came up to me and said, you know, for the first time, we see limpets. They harvest limpets for food. We can see through the shell of the limpet because they're so thin. Other organisms, these are called foraminifera. They eat the phytoplankton. There are subs organisms like the baby young of the crabs or lobsters. They have actually kept, uh, uh, calcium carbonate inside of their shells. They are being affected. When you buy soft shell crabs, they don't have the hard mineral matrix to them. It could be that the soft shell crabs are going to be the only form in the future when the ocean becomes too acid. And the truth is, I don't know what we can do about it. The ocean, because we put more carbon dioxide in the atmosphere, we're increasing the acidity of the oceans. So whole ecosystem effects are going to come in. Because of the calcium carbonate, because of the pollutants, we have corals are at risk. Literally, about a couple of weeks ago, there was a new evaluation of corals worldwide. And it says that 50% of the coral reefs may already be dead. It used to be, about a year ago, the evaluation was at 10%. And maybe 50% of them are already dead. Potential impact of ocean acidification. This is uh, uh, a couple of authors from up at Woods Hole. He said, we're talking about literally, potentially many billions of dollars. Things are going to be changing. The US government is coming in. About the time that I gave this talk in Seward, Alaska, the, uh, there was this, within the United States territorial limits, they said, we're not going to fish until we know more about it. Okay, that's management. The United States this past uh, winter came out and said that, well, all fish that we use for catch 
in the territorial limits of the United States, we're going to manage them. We're going to know how many fish are being caught. We're going to manage everything. To me, it's going to be an impossible task. I mean, how do you manage every vessel, every fish? And it's going to be very, and even you know, for your fish that you catch when you go out on a boat, how will they say, oh, you shouldn't be catching those fish? It's going to be very difficult, but that's the plan. And Friday's Washington, I think Friday's Washington Post, there it is, Friday's Washington Post. Juliet Alperin had this article, and here's the hope that through management, careful management, it may not all be gloom and doom, but we need to have that management. Some of you may have seen this. There's a blue revolution going on. There's fish farming increasing. Well, fish farming's been increasing as, you know, it goes back hundreds of years uh, for growing mussels, but fish farming is becoming global. Here's the flat line. There's fish farming. So the increase in the world's population, the increase in our demand for fisheries, is this the future? There are downsides. With all the nitrogen coming down the Mississippi River, all the fish farming that's going in here, we're creating huge dead zones in the Gulf of Mexico. Governor of New Jersey doesn't like to hear this, but that's about the size of the, of the dead zone in the Gulf of Mexico and it's growing. We're living in a time of unprecedented change. We need leadership, we need international cooperation, and there's a real requirement for management. The changing of the ocean is already going on. Is it in crisis? 71% of the Earth's surface. We've never really cared about what we do to the ocean. It's always been this immense reservoir of food. You could take what you wanted, put anything into the ocean, it would disappear. Few cared. It's only been recently that we have become aware of what kind of damage is going on, what kind of damage, what kind of impact we could have. Thank you.